This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. We cover health policy issues impacting musculoskeletal care, as well as how our orthopedic surgeon listeners can become advocates for our patients in the profession. I'm your host, Adam Brueggemann, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. Today, I have the honor of welcoming Dr. Brian Miller to the podcast. Brian is an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins and a practicing hospitalist. He also serves as a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a Washington, D.C. think tank. In addition, he serves as a MedPAC commissioner. MedPAC, for those who don't know, is a nonpartisan legislative branch agency that provides Congress with analysis and policy advice regarding the Medicare program. He has been extremely active in health policy research. He is one of our leading thinkers among physicians, and he has many publications. If you want to take some time to read through them, I think that it will be a great benefit to you as you're listening to this podcast. While he wears many hats, I want to make sure that we understand that Brian's here today individually and is providing his own individual opinions. And I wanted to thank you, Brian, for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me in. As you mentioned, my opinions are my own and not any of those of my employers or affiliations. The usual Washington disclosure, (laughs) you're here saying lots of things and they don't represent that which any but one that you work for or have worked for thinks. That's right. So let's talk just to bring some of the listeners into some of these different groups that they may not know. Tell me a little bit about how doctors can participate in healthcare in arenas outside of traditional care models. You have been successful at doing that, whether we're talking about the American Enterprise Institute, MedPAC, or many other regulatory agencies like the FTC that you've been a part of. Can you talk a little bit about your pathway to that, which you had a little bit of a unique pathway to get there, and then maybe how other doctors who might be interested in something similar could get involved? I did two residencies. I did a public health residency and an internal medicine residency because I'm a glutton for punishment. And through my public health residency, I worked for four regulatory agencies, which was a lot of fun. I originally actually started off as a guy who wanted to build businesses. And then I realized that regulatory policy has a huge opportunity to shape the practice of medicine, what it means to be a doctor, what it means to be a patient. For example, I worked at the Innovation Center. I helped set up a 100 million plus ACO model. I worked at the Federal Trade Commission on mergers for pharmaceutical products, medical devices, drugstores, hospitals, physician practices, also on competition policy related to scope practice between the licensed occupations, the FCC working on interoperability and standards development, and then also at the FDA in the policy office and also as a reviewer in the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. So I saw the upfront, I'd say, digestion of drug development programs and the years of hard work that a pharmaceutical company and its researchers and academics do that then ends up on your desk on the FDA server. So in addition to being an internist, there are lots of things that I've done. There are lots of things that any doctor actually can do. It requires curiosity persistence, because a lot of people will tell you what can't be done and how nothing changes in policy. I remember one of my friends retired and they were older and they'd been doing policy for 50 years. And they said that nothing had moved. So they were just going to go to Annapolis and retire. And obviously the, the world is better than that. It's, it's not that bad. They were just having a bad day. But as a physician, you have a unique voice because we are actually, we're a trade. We're technicians, we're craftsmen, craftspeople. 
And we understand what it means to be a patient because we're sitting there when someone has their last breaths from cancer, we're there along with their family. If they're in the hospital, we're there. If you're doing surgery, you're the person in the operating room replacing someone's hip. I'm the person in the medicine floor treating their pneumonia, drug withdrawal. And we understand that which is being financed, regulated, and overseen. So if you take that into the policy space, even if it's just meeting with someone from a regulatory agency to give them a clinician's perspective to having a position on a policy issue, writing about it, advocating on it, you can affect as much or as little change as you want. It just requires patience because most issues take years, but it's worth, I have a lot of fun. Basically every day I get to hang out with my friends and debate big and small issues alike over coffee, lunch, or just going to someone's office and chatting. What job do you get paid to be creative and think and try and make things better? There aren't that many jobs like that and get, make it better with scale. Yeah, I think that's so many great points in there. And so many people, physicians feel like they can't make an impact in policy. They can't make an impact on how we practice medicine. It's just out of their control. And there's these big organizations that are influencing healthcare. I think it's really important for people to hear from physicians like yourself who are active in these arenas and have been instrumental in change, have been instrumental in writing about how we can create change and have helped the narrative move forward in making things better for patient care, improving outcomes. And ultimately, I think all of us would like to see the cost of care come down to a reasonable amount while attaining all of those previous goals of better care and better value for the money we're spending on our healthcare patients. And I would say even before that, I'd like it to not suck. And what does that mean? So one of my friends was diagnosed with cancer recently, and they're in their late 30s. And I had to help them, like they couldn't get a primary care appointment. And so I said, this, the symptoms you're describing to me should go to an urgent care. And so they went to an urgent care and then they got imaging. And then they, how do I decide which specialists do I see? How do they know? They don't know, right? They don't know whether one oncologist is better than another oncologist or is this cardiologist the best cardiologist for heart failure or is the guy down the street better? getting an appointment, picking a doctor, what are my treatment options? All this stuff was very hard for someone who, frankly, was coming from a privileged place in society. You can only imagine what it's like if you're elderly, 80 years old, live alone, can't drive, have to take the bus places, can only walk two blocks, or if your adjusted gross income is $20,000 a year. Like The system's not easy because then you go to the doctor, you sit there and wait for hours, the doctor is late, you're annoyed, you only get to see the doctor for a few minutes, the doctor's frustrated because the doctor only gets a few minutes with you and can't hear about your grandchild or your latest achievement or whatever it is. You get printed paper instructions in 2023. I love that we still have so much paper everywhere. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's we any other industry, this type of service, and sort of policy and oversight would be unacceptable because we are not serving the end users, right? The patients are getting screwed and the doctors we have turned into, I, we are lines on a spreadsheet, right? We are treated as fungible and interchangeable with no personalization and customization for patients or physicians. And so the answer is yes, 
there's a lot of things we can do to get it better. And most change would be phenomenal, like even small change in the right direction. Because right now it seems we're all stuck in the oven and the temperature's gone from 200 to 225 to 300 to 450. And before you know it, it's full broil and your dermatologist is seeing 70 patients a day and the orthopedic surgeon is doing extra hips because they want you to stay late to fit in that other procedure. And so as a physician, we understand the frustration. We understand that quality change. We understand the burnout. And so when you go and talk with stakeholders and you can actually probably talk to a lot of people that you might not think would agree with you. I would say shockingly, even health plans realize that burned out doctors are bad because it's bad for quality, it's bad for patient satisfaction. And at the end of the day, everybody, including the other industry stakeholders, is going to be a patient at some point or another. So we all realize it needs to get better. Absolutely. I wanted to hit on one thing to start about a reform that I think would certainly help some of the burnout issues as well as some of the quality issues we're talking about. A few years ago, you and our current American Medical Association president, Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld, wrote a nice article about star clots and recognizing how they came about and why they came about and why maybe they need to change. I'm not sure all of our listeners know what the star clots are. They've probably heard about them. They maybe have heard of of what they are, but maybe if you could give a little bit of kind of background to the physician self-referral laws and how they came about and why they're named after Congressman Pete Stark. There was a lot of health services research in the 80s and 90s that was suggestive that when people own facilities, that there's so-called induced demand. I have an x-ray machine. The concept behind that is, is I'm going to order more x-rays for my patients. It's a problem in a fee-for-service setting. If you're ordering tests that aren't needed, there's harms from false positives, there's added costs, there's inconvenience. And unfortunately, Congress, in their wisdom, enacted a permanent statutory prohibition on physician self-referral for so-called designated health services. And all of us have had to take a variety of compliance modules around Stark Law. So as a physician... If you own a imaging center or a home health service, self-referral in the Medicare and Medicaid programs is statutorily illegal. Now, what there, there are a couple of interesting things about this. One is it's illegal for a physician-owned enterprise, but the massive multi-billion dollar health system down the street, that's not illegal. And in fact, it's frequently required by many of those health systems, many of whom are tax exempt, so they don't pay taxes, frequently require internal referral and some sort of weird process or exception for external referral. Congress handicapped physician-owned enterprise, small and large, and preferenced large, horizontally and vertically integrated health systems. And then we wonder why most physicians end up employed not working for a physician-owned enterprise. So that's the problem. And you say, what can you do about it? Fee-for-service is a problem in that if you deliver more units of service or a greater intensity of service, you make more money and physicians are smart and know a lot more than the hospital executive. Although I'd say physicians definitely don't know more than the hospital executives when it comes to lobbying. So that aside, you think about managed care, which gives a lot of us heartburn. All right, I mentioned managed care and probably half the audience went to go look for a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 blocker 
right? <laughs> They're like, oh God, where are we going? This is terrible. So Medicare and Medicaid right now are very different programs than they were in the 80s and 90s, right? 51% of Medicare is Medicare Advantage, and it's something like 72 or 73% of Medicaid is Medicaid MCOs or Medicaid Managed Care Organizations. And in addition to just speaking French, what those managed care programs are is risk-adjusted capitation. So the plan is paid by the government, a per member per month risk-adjusted for health status amount. We can have a debate about whether those capitation rates or that risk adjustment is appropriate or whether it's over too much or too little. We can also have a debate about whether the plans are behaving well. Frequently, they do things they're not supposed to. But in that setting, in that managed care setting, we are subject to the benefit and torture of utilization review, right? Prior authorization. Unfortunately, it seems like there's now some post-procedure authorization, which I guess it would be prior authorization, but that doesn't make sense because prior authorization is supposed to be prior to the procedure. You say, great, so we're being tortured by managed care companies. That doesn't really sound like fun. And the answer is, of course not. It's definitely not fun. But if we are worried about induced demand, that physicians are going to build some massive enterprise and order a bunch of tests or do a bunch of procedures that they're not supposed to, if we're worried about that, if you have a health plan that's engaging in utilization review, prior authorization, you actually don't need Stark Law in that setting. So Congress could actually amend Stark Law to provide a statutory exception for self-referral for beneficiaries who are at managed care, which would massively increase competition. And then from a burnout perspective, one of the reasons that physicians are burned out is the externalization of the locus of control over clinical practice. How many employed docs decide their own schedule, which days they work, maybe they wanna stay late one evening and offer a clinic once a month for people after work, or maybe they want to take their kids to soccer practice Friday morning, or I guess it'd be Friday afternoon, so they want to start earlier and then leave early. It's really hard to do that in a corporate environment. It's also hard to customize care when you're graded and paid on whether you follow rigid guidelines. And as I remind myself, guidelines are there to guide us, but the patient is the person in front of us who deserves individualized, customized service just for them, which sometimes and frequently follows the guideline, but may deviate as clinically appropriate. And the best person to make that decision is the patient in conjunction with their physician, not necessarily a corporate overlord. We should promote physician-owned enterprise in a managed care setting and potentially allow physicians to own hospitals, own x-ray, MRIs, home health, because if the massive $12 billion a year health system down the street is doing that and not paying taxes, why shouldn't the physician enterprise, which by the way, does pay taxes, uh, why shouldn't we allow them to do that? That's a, in addition to increasing competition, allowing for competition, customization and integrated care, there's a huge tax benefit to the local governments for doing so. Yeah, so many great points. I wanna unpackage a few of those. You mentioned, and just to make sure everybody is clear on this, when you said that vertically integrated systems encourage, require, or otherwise self-referral, I just want to make sure I understand and make sure the listeners understand what you're saying is that if I become employed, 
by my local healthcare system, they may tie my pay, whether from giving me more pay or taking away pay, to whether or not I refer patients to other doctors who may not be the best doctors. They may be, I don't know. But I have to refer within my healthcare system and do my procedures at their hospital, even if, as you said, that may not be the right answer for the individualized care for the patient in front of me. It might not even be tied to pay. It just might be simply a requirement. As in you practice within the health system and refer within the health system, and there might not even be a technology option in your electronic health record to refer outside the health system. I remember when I was a resident, it was very hard to send a patient outside the health system. And I was unable to functionally as a resident. I remember some of my attendings tried to, and it was challenging and they got a stern talking to. The executive said, why are you doing this? And I remember the faculty member in the MedStar Health System said, I think that this other person is the best doctor. They were told, doesn't matter. So when that's your job and your choice is to do your job within your confines, that's not good for patients. And frankly, it subjugates the profession and professional autonomy. I think we all went to med school, the majority of us went to med school to try and make people's lives better in whatever our specialty is. And we should let people have that choice to do so. We shouldn't be putting corporate control over care delivery over what's best for the patient in front of us. And I don't think our patients know this. I don't think that they know when they enter into these vertically integrated systems, which by the way, most of them probably don't know whether or not their doctor is an independent practicing doctor, vertically integrated, owned by the insurance company, owned by the hospital system. They really don't know. There's no transparency around who employs the physician nor the incentives that patient has. Absolutely. And vertical integration isn't all bad, right? There are some benefits from making the patient experience simpler. But there are also downsides to that. And we also need to be clear with patients what that looks like. And then physicians need to have an option and an opportunity to compete with those vertically integrated systems. Right now, we can't because of the law. You touched on some of these laws, and I think there's been some changes to the laws recently that were geared around value-based care. In other words, some of the things, some of the concepts you're talking about where if these are capitated markets or if there are value-based arrangements where physicians are at risk in these models, there may be some exceptions now that are being created. Where would you say the regulatory agencies or the kind of legislative thought should go going forward? Is it towards this model of, as you said, either if we're in a fee-for-service model, there's some sort of structure like prior authorization, utilization review, or if we're in some sort of value-based care model where the physician is truly at risk for upside or downside risk, then you back off the stark laws or restrictions. I would go with option three. So option two, right, where the physician is at risk, right? When the physicians have taken risk before in history, in health finance. We did so in the 90s, uh, before I was around, it didn't go well. A lot of practices went bankrupt. There were publicly traded physician clinic chains, which went under having a variety of physician-owned businesses form, grow, and then go bankrupt because they undertake capitation or too much financial risk, I don't think is a prudent policy. Granted, we have more technology and more information today, 
that's still a heavy burden to bear. I would go with option three. Option three would be a statutory exception to Stark Law in a managed care setting, simply because managed care means that the plan is capitated at risk. The plan is already undertaking and engaging in utilization review. And so their incentives are to make sure that induced demand does not happen. And if it is there, to police it. Those managed care models have already taken over Medicaid, are on the path towards dominating Medicare. I'd say they're in a very mild majority right now. So we should find a better way to work within that system and make that managed care system less oppressive for physicians. I think if you wanted to implement utilization review in fee-for-service Medicare, we would both probably get shot. Agreed. Agreed. I'm going to shift gears just slightly to one other really hot topic. You cannot turn on a TV, read an article, get on LinkedIn, X, or anywhere and not hear about artificial intelligence. Whether we're talking about generative AI like chat GPT, which is everywhere, to other utilizations that we're seeing now in healthcare. We're even seeing maybe that artificial intelligence can identify breast cancer on a mammogram as well as, or close to as well as, two physicians who review it. We are seeing dermatology. We're seeing other fields using it. And then we're also seeing some generative artificial intelligence. Can you talk about some of the applications you're seeing and where you see artificial intelligence going within the healthcare field? First, I would be remiss if I didn't note that artificial intelligence is something that we in the health policy community have had for years, if not decades. So that particular personal enjoyment use aside, I see primarily three uses. One is what I would call automation of the mundane. So that is removing the pain from administrative processes for patients and physicians. So that could mean AI not only listening in on your clinic visit, but also transcribing, then formulating a note, which you as the physician read at the uh, end of the visit or after the visit. Another example could be prior authorization, which is a double-edged sword to say the least, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks. You can imagine if applied appropriately and not abused, that could potentially decrease review time. You could imagine, for example, that prior authorization could have automation for approval of services as opposed to denial, for one example of flavoring there. Artificial intelligence could also be used for augmentation. One of my grad students, he's a radiology resident, and he says that we're trying to eliminate his job. I said, no, Vrusha, we're not trying to eliminate your job. We still want you to be employed. But his efficiency could be increased. So if he pulled up a CTA of a chest, imagine if it already identified where it thought a probable PE was. And you say, okay, great, Brian, no one's really excited about this. No one cares. Actually, it matters a lot because if we look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics measure of labor productivity growth for private community hospitals, it's been flat for the last 25 years. And in fact, in some years, has actually declined. In terms of service industries, that's really atypical and very bad. So this could potentially reverse that trend. I'd say the third one is the sort of selfish Star Trek wish for automation and care delivery and autonomous care delivery. We're not going to end up with the doctor hologram from Star Trek Voyager for probably another 40 or 50 years. 
but we can have automation of elements of clinical practice with the physician still overseeing the results and the physician as the manager of AI tools in areas like dermatology and pathology. So I, I think that there's a lot we could do. We also have to be careful not to be morons and over-regulate the space. So Congress is going bananas right now around AI. People had talked about creating a new AI, AI and digital health or digital, sorry, regulatory agency. Instead, you should have the expert regula regulators in whatever the space is, in this case, it could be FDA, uh, oversee um, market entry and product development. Uh, I think if we go bananas, It'll be like insisting on having airbags and anti-lock brakes on your 1890 Daimler car, which really doesn't make sense. My favorite though, is the proposals for radical transparency of AI algorithms. It's like, hold on, let's stop operating. I need to read the clinical trial behind this algorithm. Or the analogy in the car would be, my car is about to crash. Do I really want that airbag to go off or not? So the challenge for health policy physicians and frankly, legislators will be to think about AI from a process rather than product regulation and also move towards performance-based regulation. Well, I mean, those are some really great ideas. And as I think through a lot of those topics, I'm thinking through some of our earlier conversation about physician burnout, about trying to help physicians run their practices more efficiently. I also think too, that recent study that showed that over 50% of current medical students are thinking about a career outside of the practice of medicine and dovetailing with your example of the fact that we're relatively flat at this point, we have people who need to consume healthcare services. And so making the physicians who are getting into medical school and residencies more efficient to take care of a growing and booming population that requires healthcare is going to be really important for ensuring that patients still continue to have access to high quality care. Also, just allowing physicians to be physicians. I think there was a JAMA internal medicine study of internal medicine residents, which showed like 13% of the day is spent in actual patient contact. And I know that none of my surgical colleagues get excited to dictate operative notes, right? That's not the highlight of your day. You don't want to spend your time doing that. You especially don't want to spend like 10, 12 days in the OR and then have to come out and dictate a bunch of case notes. Are there ways that we can pull that administrative nonsense, either automate it or automate it such that you then have a very quick review afterwards so that you can focus on doing the things that you train to do, which is... We're all tradespeople in a profession. We want to practice the trade and help people. I don't want to be a desk jockey. Brian, I want to thank you for coming on today. I know you're busy. I know you have a lot of things going on. This was really great topics that we don't really get into in a lot of our advocacy conversations. And I think reforming Starclaw, thinking about artificial intelligence, looking at how we can continue to make incremental changes within our healthcare system and get more of our physician colleagues involved, whether it's in advocacy or on the regulatory side is just critical to the future, to you and I, when we're utilizing our healthcare system and the next generation uses this healthcare system. I really thank you for your time today. And this was really wonderful conversation. 
Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound designed by Mission Based Media. If you like what you heard today, please consider offering a rating or review and sharing the podcast with your colleagues. You can learn more information about this topic and other AAOS advocacy efforts by visiting aaos.org forward slash the Bonebeat advocacy.